On the Sport and the Growing Good podcast, we have conversations with some of the top coaches and leaders in the field of athletics and learn lessons not just about winning on the field or on the court, but also on how um, athletics and coaches and leaders in athletics can improve lives and help make our society a better place. Today's guest is Coach Greg Gard, who is the head men's basketball coach at the University of Wisconsin. And Coach Gard is a, uh, an exemplar of these things I just mentioned. Um, he's obviously well-known and has been just uh, super successful as the head coach at Wisconsin. Um, was the Big Ten Coach of the Year this year. Um, and his, his kind of awards and accolades, um, you can read about them or have read about them. Um, but when you get a chance to visit with Coach Guard and, and uh, uh, learn from him, you learn that there's a depth of uh, a depth of thought and reflection and um, perspective that not many other coaches have. Um, so this conversation with Coach Guard, I I truly appreciated um, not only to hear about who he learned from and how he learned, but even some of the kind of subtle little things he pays attention to. Um, for example, when he visits a school um, to learn about a recruit, um, the people he speaks with, and uh, the types of information that he sees as important. Um, so Coach Guard, uh, really appreciate your, your time with us and uh, learned a lot from you. So thanks, Coach Guard, for joining the Sport and the Growing Good podcast. Just because it was on TV, and they were both good. They were that was, you know, Barry was at 
Iowa at the time as an assistant, um, like Lute Olson and then George Raveling were at Iowa in basketball and they were really good. So it kind of, that kind of started it. And that was a, that was a steady diet in terms of a team I watched consistently just because of, like I said, the, the time and they were on during the week when normally you couldn't get any other game. And, um, so that, I remember those images distinctly. And, and then obviously as I got to college, I got cut off the college baseball team in Platteville. And then I answered a want ad in a local shopping newspaper. And it was for an eighth grade basketball coach. And it was merely a part of part. I needed a little something to do with my time and a part-time job rather than bagging groceries, going through college and trying to earn some extra money. Um, that was part of the motivation, but I I'd missed athletics so much. I had great teachers and great coaches in high school that really were very inspiring and did a great job and I, and I missed that part of my life and I didn't really care what sport it was it was I played three sports in high school and it was always something to occupy your time and you're always in that competitive environment and and so I applied for that eighth grade job and ended up getting it and kind of that started the coaching route in, in terms of what was going to happen over the next 30 years but never with the intent that it was going to end up in college it, it kind of always went day by day and year by year so that I think really is, as I look back, it was those, you know, optimal or, or opportunities to watch college basketball on TV at the time and, and uh, kind of started the whole thing. Do you remember as such a young guy coaching eighth graders, um, what was your model at that point? What did you draw from? My uh, two things. One was my high school coach. Um, I, I drew a lot from him and he coached in the same conference he had left at the time but the conference that i went to or that school i went to was in the same conference that uh, this school was in so there were some connections of people i knew and, and things like that uh that really helped in that but i also the first college or the first coaching clinic i ever went to i went with a couple other coaches three other coaches actually from from south the southwest part of the state we drove to Bloomington, Indiana, to a Bob Knight coaching clinic, and it was um, it was when they had open practices, the early part of October when they would start practice. You'd come in on a Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday, and spend the whole weekend at you know whatever college. And obviously, at that point in time, in the late '80s, early '90s, that was like '91 or '92. Night obviously had come off; it won a national championship in '87, so. If you could go listen to Bob Knight speak, that was a thing. So, and obviously an opportunity you couldn't pass up. So that was the first coaching clinic that I ever went to was watching him and his assistants, um, you know, coach their team and they'd be mic'd up and show things during practice and then come over to the podium and talk for a little bit and then go back to practice. So, um, you know, that was kind of where it started. Um, I, I would say there was some Bob Knight, not that I tried to, emulate him on the sidelines and have that type of tirade at times. But the, um, and then the third, I think influence, I just had started working camps at Platteville in the summer and, and Bo Ryan uh, obviously became the primary influence in terms of coaching philosophy. And there was a lot of crossover between my high school coach, the coach I was working for in junior high and, and high school. And then um, obviously what Knight had done, but also what Bo was doing. There was a lot of similarities across the board and, and really that 
started the foundation of my coaching philosophy, kind of the melting pot, so to speak, of all those experiences. The discussion of Bob Knight is sure interesting. I, I can remember growing up in Indiana. I grew up in Indiana, and uh, he he was such a presence in that state, you know, um, not only because the team, well, partially because the team was so good, but even um, when you're around him, he, he has almost like a physical presence to him. He's a big, right. he's a big guy. Yep. He and he has a very powerful presence. Um, yeah, it, it he was you know he his influence in that state was you could see it in almost every high school gym growing right. up, and it still resonates I think in Indiana the the night influence. There's no doubt that you know he's a very polarizing figure, and and I don't think in today's world you can't coach as I mentioned before the tirades on the sideline. I don't you can't communicate and coach in that manner today's society with today's generation um but given the time frame it was in of of history obviously he was very impactful and uh and i think every i know every great coach is a great teacher and you could definitely tell that by how he ran his practices and the films i've watched of him that are old and grainy now but his coaching clinics and instructional videos uh an exceptional teacher that was really down to every minute detail being covered and nothing looked over. And, you know, Bo was very much the same way when I was with him. It was every little finite detail. And like I said, I think the best coaches really want to boil it down. They're the best teachers and do a great job of communicating and, and pointing out every little simple thing that maybe from 30,000 feet you wouldn't think are important. But when you're really at the at the forefront of it and you have your boots on the ground, those little things make the difference. This uh, focus on detail, I, I wanted to ask you about that a little bit in that, you know, again, maybe even going back to the Bob Knight early days, the 80s, or even the early days with Coach Ryan, there was a certain, um, you, you know, the, the coach could be really much viewed as the authority in the room and, and still is, but um, uh, the extent to which kids receive feedback has probably changed um, in that, like, Maybe in 1990, a coach could say, "You're gonna, you're gonna spend 45 minutes working on a defensive slide this way, and not have to give them any kind of like context or why to say you're gonna do it. It's my way or the highway." Right. Um, and so, has that ability to focus on the detail? Have you had to change over time, or have you seen ways that, like, maybe the the 20-year-old or the 18-year-old in 1990 is different from the one in 2020? Yeah, no doubt. And I think that's part of what I alluded to with the the tirades on the sidelines, kind of the authoritative figure, so to speak, and, and the intimidation factor. And I think Knight coached a lot through that, through intimidation. And, and like you said, my way or the highway. And, and that I think not only that from today's society of how young people are raised and, and what they've been exposed to, but also I think their ability, young people's ability to communicate. And what I've noticed, it's not only been since 1990 to 2020, I've noticed a change in the last five, eight, ten years. And, and part of it's our society of the mobile devices and, and everything communicating via Instagram, Twitter, those things that the ability to communicate person to person, eyeball to eyeball has diminished. And so we really try to work hard on that 
that I tell my guys, I can't, I'm not going to be able to text you during a game, block out. You know, there's going to have to be interpersonal communication and, and really working on that and, and understanding and, and as a coach, always looking for better ways to communicate that. And, and I think the biggest way is you really got to develop a relationship with your players and your people. And, and that goes beyond the game of basketball. And when you develop the relationship, you get trust and, and the ability to make yourself vulnerable, I think is another thing that's really important. And, and players need to see that kids need to see that student athletes need to see that, that see you in a, wearing a different hat than just the coach hat all the time. And I think when you develop that trust and that communication and show that vulnerability, then you really, I think, um, kind of gain gain their acceptance and gain their trust, and and it helps them be comfortable communicating with you. And what's what's not normal, what's not comfortable for them, um, you help them grow through some of that um, by maybe showing who you truly are and what you're about and uh i've noticed for myself my own experiences that's really helped when you can um communicate in that way and and uh try to help walk them through it and not maybe berate them through it and uh, like i said what maybe you watch older coaches do what the coaches that i even had back in the 80s and 90s that were much more vocal and much more boisterous and like i said my way or the highway you have to take a different approach and find different ways to teach when you say being vulnerable, do you mean um, like not always having to have the answers uh, as the coach, or do you mean um, kind of showing them more of your life outside of the game, or what do you mean by being vulnerable? I think all of that. I mean, I think knowing that, hey, I'm here to help and mentor and guide, but I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. Um, I think really showing them or having them understand and get a glimpse of what your life is like, whether it's at home with your with your spouse with your kids um, what your life was like growing up what your experiences were talking about those type of things as a coach and what how had how has it changed and i did that with our team this year of how kind of communication through the years has changed and how we as coaches got to continue to do a better job and find better ways and and i think also being really honest and true with them i mean and and it's okay to be emotional in in the right appropriate manner with your team and show them that hey you really care about them and I think that's the thing that's it's so hard sometimes for coaches to to pull down that curtain so to speak of macho ness and I've got all the answers and we're going to go through this and make yourself vulnerable to say hey you know <clears throat> I'm struggling with something here too and we're going to get through this together and I think when they see that commonality that that um, you have real life issues you walk through just like anybody else and and you're able to show that and experience that and talk about that with your team i think that that helps and and obviously we've gone through you know um you know the the worst real life experience this year with um coach moore's accident so that gave us a avenue and opened a door that normally you'd have to work a lot harder to open that door to emotion and to to really showing your feelings and being vulnerable and, and to talk about what really life is about and what it's like for you. And, and I think that in uh you know, in a roundabout way has helped me communicate better with my team. Howard, Howard is such a, uh, you, you talked about um, different emotions and um, that it's okay to be emotional. Um, 
in working with Howard over the years as well, that seemed to be something he was so good at was to um, meet people where they were, you know, and, and to be a real person to, to kids on and off the court. Is that is that something that as a head coach, it's not just you working with individuals, but you're you're you assemble a unit as your assistant coaches, your your entire staff. When you are doing that, um, are you looking for people who are kind of like you or are you looking for purposeful difference on your staff? Um, how does that what do you think about when you're assembling your your, your whole unit? Yeah, I think I think it's important to have a differentiation of and not be afraid of <clears throat> I always tell my staff don't be afraid to challenge me on some things you know I, I may agree with you um, and we may change something that you recommend I may say no we're going to continue to do it our way or this way but don't be afraid don't be a yes man so to speak I, I really want you to bring up new things but at the same time I think Having a unified voice has always been the teams that we've had that I've coached here in the last four and a half years. When we've had adversity and struggles and we've gone through rough times, the team will always look back to see how the, the staff is. And if they see a unified front, a unified voice, now it doesn't mean the message is going to be or the voice is going to be exactly the same, but the message is very similar from coach to coach. And I've been very fortunate that I've had great assistant coaches with me that when we have hit the rough water and it's it's really easy to coach when things are going well you know and sunny and 75 out and you're rolling along but you really get challenged when you hit some adverse moments and adverse times and every season has adversity in its own way shape or form and sometimes it's more visible to the public than others but when that team turns and looks back to see what are their leaders doing what are their coaches doing having a unified voice um, or a unified stance has been huge for us, and that's helped, you know, because they see a disjointed staff and a staff with four different opinions or ways we should do things or thoughts, and, and they're all conflicting, then you're going to splinter your group because they're not going to know who to believe, who to trust. Um, but there's no doubt that I think having like-minded people, but yet staff members that aren't afraid to challenge the status quo. And there have been times when we've changed things, and and my staff has brought recommendations to me, and we've done it. And there's been times when I said, no, that's after I've thought about it or we've talked about it. We're going to stay with you know, what, how we're doing it. We're going to fight through it and try to do it better. So trying to always navigate that back and forth and not be afraid to change and not be afraid to, to talk about those things. And, and, again, make yourself vulnerable that you don't have all the answers and you're always searching for it's a better way to help your group. And I think that's really what I've tried to convey with both players and staff is how can we do this better for the benefit of the whole? And it's not about me and, uh, and ego or anything like that. It's what's the best way to help our guys learn and grow forward and, and continue to improve. This one area that's always been a little interesting to me, and it's something I just don't understand very well, is um, when you spend all this time in the spring and summer in gyms, um, not in Madison, out at you know big tournaments or whether it's high schools or wherever it is, and I'm wondering if you're almost living like a parallel life with some of your biggest competitors. So some of the other coaches in the Big Ten or similar types of schools, um, how often do you actually, are you actually sitting side by side by some of your, your biggest competitors? And what is, is there ever relationships that you develop with 
someone who on one hand is someone you're going toe to toe with throughout the season, but on the other hand, you can get to know them and respect them and even grow from and learn from them. Does that, does that occur yeah, for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It occurs almost every time on your, you're on the road. In fact, you almost gravitate to each other just because we all kind of live the same life and we're at different stages, obviously. And, and some are a little less experienced. Some have been doing it for a long time and in the role. And I think that's the other thing. I think head coach, what I've noticed is head coaches kind of gravitate towards head coaches because of our experiences and what we've had to go through and, and what we've lived through. And we kind of share our war stories, so to speak. Um, to a, to a degree, but I think there's definitely a, a gravitation towards each other. And sometimes you spend more time talking about those things and all the trials and tribulations you've had than you do maybe paying attention to the players you're watching. But there's, there's no doubt that, uh, I think that's a, it's almost a support network, so to speak. And, and that, it not only transcend or happens, you know, obviously it's more in-person contact when we're on the road recruiting and, and, uh, typically in the summer and it's, you know, it's high volume. So you see a lot of the same guys, you know, for the three or four weeks that we're out in the, uh, in the summer, but even when there's adversity or things that are a little rocky in your own season, getting phone calls or text messages from those guys or people that have been in that position, whether it's a current head coach somewhere or a coach that's retired, that's lived through it. And, and, you know, if you look far enough, you're going to find a coach that's gone through something very, very similar. And like I said, I've, I've tried to always lean on the guys that have had the more experience because I find they're obviously they've, they've had the experience and, and you're going to find that most coaches have gone through a lot of adversity at some point in, in time, um, in different shapes and forms. And sometimes it gets public and sometimes it doesn't, but, uh, having that resource has been huge for me and the people that I've been able to talk to. Are there certain coaches who maybe are, you know, just a little bit ahead of your phase? Maybe we're in it ten years before you, who fit this category, who have been especially meaningful to you? Yeah, I think obviously, obviously, Coach Ryan, because he's gone through and he shared some more things, probably with me now that he's retired and what he went through early as a head coach, and he had a little different track because obviously he had a lot of experience in Division Three that wasn't in a microscope or or uh, under a spotlight like it is here at this level. Um, Dick Bennett's been very good and he's been very reflective and told me more things that he did wrong than he did right and reflected back on very similar um, experiences that I've gone through and I think two others on the outside of the Badger family have been Tom Izzo um, the Tom and I have developed a really unique relationship and I think part of it stems back to his viewpoint of my track as an assistant you know never leaving the state of Wisconsin he never left the state of Michigan. He grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Wisconsin. He was a longtime assistant for Judd Heathcote. I was a longtime assistant for Bo Ryan. And there was a similar track there. And I think there's always been an affinity towards each other of, of you know, what how each of us have come to our current positions. So Tom has been terrific in terms of just reflecting back and, and has been really helpful and, and very supportive even before I – um, got this position. And the other one I think that's kind of gone through a similar track is Matt Painter at Purdue. You know, um, played at Purdue, obviously was there as an assistant, went off and was a head coach for just a little while, but also had to replace a very successful coach at Gene Cady. And we've talked about that, of how it's what it's like to step into the shoes of a legend and uh, the, the challenges that come with that. And, uh, and like I said, that's for both Tom and, and for Matt, that's been very helpful for me to listen to what they've experienced replacing those two guys at Purdue and Michigan State. When you look 
back the other way at those who are who are kind of younger or newer to the profession um are there concerns that you have and and i'm not even talking necessarily about college coaches here but maybe even about like as you're out on the aau circuit or on the club circuit and you look at kind of the status of the profession that is leading to you um are, do you have concerns now that it maybe are different from what they were again 10 years ago yeah i think the one thing pete that's really uh and it, this has been trending this way for a long time you find very few coaches in high school anymore that are teachers at that school and that when i was growing up everybody who was a coach was a teacher whether they taught in high school whether they're the guidance counselor whether they were uh, a FIA teacher in the elementary school in the in the district almost every coach that i came encountered with or encountered or had an experience was with it was a teacher and you rarely find that now we walk into a high school to recruit and they're coming from a different job and, and part of it's the financial um wherewithal just you can make more money other than you know if, if you're doing it for financial reasons you know maybe education is not the most um you know profession you can get the wealthiest from so they're in business and they're doing different things um but i also think i think there's been you know more and more parental pressure from the outside in a, in a selfish way of trying to help or or uh, use the coach as a scapegoat for your your students or your son or daughter's lack of success and that they've they've created such a there's been such an environment created that i've seen grow over the years and it used to be really isolated in terms of parental pressure and and uh, trying to push a coach out of something didn't go well, and now I see it almost everywhere. And that's those things are concerning. And I think the other thing that's really concerning is, you know, if they look at a position like my position and they try to get to that position immediately, the fast track. And when I was coaching in junior high in the '90s, and then freshman in high school, and I, I never did it with the envision I was going to coach in college, let alone Division One not even division three. I mean, it was my career track as I developed a passion for coaching. I just wanted to help the young people that I was with at that current day have the best experience possible. And that was really driven because I had had such a great experience as I mentioned before. I had great teachers and mentors and coaches um, that I always felt if I could create half of the experience for the kids I'm going to coach that I had, they're in for a great, great time because I had such a great time um, playing in, in junior high and high school. So, I feel sometimes the the true meaning behind why we do what we do gets lost and and everybody's looking for the fast track and the quick answer and it really there isn't one and I always tell you know young coaches that come to our camps or ask me about career progression um, you know make the most of the job where your feet are and that's what Bo was always very good about emphasizing that that the best job you have the best job out there is the one you have and make that the best situation. And when you're 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, you don't understand that. You want the next job really fast. You want to climb the ladder. But looking back now at 49, I know exactly what he was talking about. And and he would always talk about, you know, uh, there's great basketball and great coaches. Don't look at the Roman numeral behind the school. It doesn't, you don't necessarily, just because you're in a Division One school doesn't mean you're better than a Division Three school from a coaching standpoint. And, and enjoy and embrace the journey you're on and, like I said, be where your feet are. So those things have really resonated with me as I've gone deeper into my coaching journey. Um, and the more experience I get and things I see 
uh, you know, history is a great teacher. And the things that older coaches were talking about back 15, 20, 30 years ago, you see happening now. And I think those are the things that are concerning going forward that are we losing some of the true meaning behind teaching and coaching? As I said, right at the outstart, the, the best coaches are the best teachers. And, and I think sometimes we lose sight of what our true purpose and, and meaning is and, and the value that we can bring to young people's lives. It's kind of remarkable to see how you over the years have just continued to um, restock the, I don't know what the word is, restock the shelves or that you continually find guys that um, step up. And I know a lot of that is, is finding the right people and player development and that. And there, there are some obvious parts to that, but in terms of what you're looking for, but what are some of the non-obvious things you look for when you're out looking at a young man. In other words, you you know, you know you have a certain physical skill set that a kid has to have, you know certain attitude things, but are, are there some kind of like cues that you get when you're out at a gym or when you're talking with the family that a lot of people might not think about? Yeah, I think you can tell physical ability and potential at two or three trips up and down the floor. Watch how they run, watch how they pass and catch, you know, the, the physical attributes, you can pick up on those pretty quickly, but trying to, we spend more time working on or researching those other intangibles of how they are as a person, who they are as a person, how do they treat the people around them, how do they interact with their parents, how do they interact with their coaches, their teachers. Um, you know, I, I will, I like to, when I go to a high school game, I'll sit opposite the bench, across from the bench, and I'll watch the interaction of a student coming off or a play coming off the floor does he come off disgusted does he throw the towel does he does he uh, not interact with his teammates you know how does he react to his coach what's his eye contact during a timeout in the huddle and then how does he treat his parents after a game and my mom was a my mom was a high school secretary uh, for the principal at the high school I went to for 44 years and and I learned really quickly if you really want to know what's going on with the kid or you really want to know what's going on at the high school, you talk to the secretaries and the janitors. Those are the two people or two groups of people that will really give you the scuttlebutt of what's really going on in the underground of the school and what a kid is really about. So when we walk into a school, specifically during the day or at the end of a class day, if I can spend a couple minutes with the secretary or I can catch the custodian or those people that are really have their boots on the ground, so to speak, every day and just drop the kid's name and, and you'll, it's like putting a quarter in, you'll get all the information you could ever want and you get the history of the family and the, you get the, you know, the brothers and sisters who have come through before and what the parents are like. So that's, I have found that that's been great, a great resource in terms of, you know, really learning who the kids are about and you, you know, how do they handle adversity? How do they, you know, do they handle tough times? Cause it, when you're getting recruited, there's a lot of glamour and they get showered with adoration, so to speak. But real life isn't going to be like that. And their college journey likely is going to be like that. They're going to hit some, some rough patches at times and it's hard. You know, at the time they're, you know, in high school, they're the best player on the team and they can kind of do what they want when they want. When they get to college, the level of competition immensely ratchets its, itself up. So how can they, how do they handle adversity? How do they handle when they, um, get told that's not good enough and they have to do it again. And that's part of that whole, as we talked about earlier, that communication, that level of trust being to build uh, and vulnerability. 
a lot of times the students that I get or the players that I get, when we tell them, no, that's not good enough and you got to do it again or you're not getting as many minutes as you think we're getting, that's the first time in their careers they've been told no or they're not good enough or you got to get better. And how do, how do they handle that? How do they process that? Is it become a blame situation where it's somebody else's fault all the time? Or do they look internally and say, I got to get better and improve myself and I got to soak in the teaching and the experience that is around me and and you try to you try to learn as much about that with the individuals you can before you get them on campus but a lot of times they haven't been put into that environment or haven't been have it don't have experience in that environment of failing and how do you handle failure because it's going to come at some point in time how do you react to it and learning those answers well before you get them is helpful but it's also difficult at times well, that's just such a, a interesting and smart strategy. It seems like to, you know, a lot of coaches are probably coaches and parents maybe are all ready to sell their kid, but by going to someone like a secretary or a janitor, um, you're getting a more authentic uh, read or response or, or another another point of data at the very least. Exactly, exactly, and really somebody that doesn't, you know, coach always wants to promote their own kid and rightfully so and speak you'll you'll rarely find a coach that'll say negative things or or maybe give you the complete truth but the one thing about the secretaries the janitors those people they they don't have a lot of skin in the game you know they they can be authentic as you mentioned they can be real and they can and sometimes they're witnesses or to what has happened in the hallway between classes and what how do they uh, when they have to come to get a pass for class, how do they ask, ask for that class or ask for that pass? Are they respectful? Are they, you know, and and uh, how do they treat people in the school? And I think when you have, like I mentioned before, a lot of the coaches are not in the schools day to day. They're not teachers anymore. So you have to find some avenue to have a, a lens into the everyday life. And how are they when they don't have a ball in their hands in the gym? Uh, how are they as a person? And I think those two um, areas of, of employees or people, like I said, the people that are constantly in that environment at the school can give you a great snapshot of, of what a kid's about. Uh, Coach, my last uh, question, and this comes from both my personal experience with you and also what I've you know read about you over the, over the years. Like I will see you over recent years at a middle school gym I know you coached your own son as you're coaching uh, you know, the Wisconsin Badger team over the years. I'll see you watching your kids or see you with your family. One of the things that a lot of our young coaches that I work with are often kind of mulling over is, can I be a coach and have some degree of balance in my life? In other words, it's an all-encompassing type of profession, maybe more so than lots of others. Um, I know there's no silver bullet here or easy solution, but how have you thought about that of being a you know a son, a brother, husband, father over the years while also giving your full full out as a as a coach? Yeah, it's that's a very that's a challenge, um, and I don't think you're ever going to have balance. And and what I mean by that is I've always felt I could never get the quantity that I want and and there's two people of there's two groups of people um I was I read somewhere I was told a long time ago that you're never going to have enough time with one are your parents and the other ones are your own kids so the I think the trying to find the quality the right 
level of quality is more important or I found to be more valuable than quantity because you're never going to have enough. And, and obviously, like I mentioned, we don't have balance because they're between recruiting and coaching and traveling and, and just the mental, um, I think, capacity that coaching takes. You know, you you try to leave it at, leave it at the doorstep when you walk into home, but it's hard to do that at times if you're really invested into it. I'm popping open my laptop and watching practice film or I'm popping open my laptop and watching game film. And I've, I've tried to discipline myself to not do it when my kids are awake or around and mine are a little older. So they're kind of, you know, self-supporting and, and, but when I was younger, that was, that was hard. That was a challenge. So I do a lot of late night film study after they'd go to bed and put them to bed, read to them and that type of stuff. Then I'd go and, you know, do some film study from 10 until one or whatever. So, but it, there's no doubt there's not a there's not a perfect balance. You're not gonna create a fifty fifty split, and, and probably, as you mentioned, it's it's so much more time consuming and taxing than a nine to five job where you you know you walk out of the office door and you can leave it. Um, coaching isn't like that because you're here. My phone's always on twenty four seven, so it's, it never gets beyond about three or four feet from me, uh, even in the dead of night. Um, because you're always accessible to the people that you're trying to help and players, staff, those things that have reached out a variety of times. So I think when you um, are that invested, that, that means something to you. And again, you're trying to find that balance. It's, and like I said, that's a challenge. That's hard. And that you have to have a very supportive spouse, um, which I do, which I'm very fortunate, but also somebody that's, not afraid to call it how it is and she's called me out i'm like hey put your phone down or hey the kids are present so kind of that be where your feet are mentality is important and that's a challenge and i think that's the one thing that i still struggle with and how do you balance that it's easier when you're out of the season because you can focus on a little more of the the kids and, and those type of things but in season things get whirling and flying so fast um that sometimes you lose sight of uh, the importance of the people that are really close to you and, and you catch yourself and dial back when you find yourself in those moments and, and make sure that you're, uh, you know, giving the right time and, and the right appreciation to those people that are closest to you. Well, you certainly walked the walk. I, I, I can't remember, and I'm not sure if it was the Final Four or Sweet 16 a number of years ago, being at the hotel and you were at the hotel, <laughs> you were at the hotel pool with uh, I think it was like after, you know, winning a Final Four game with your kids, you had the laptop looking at like Duke oh, yeah. Duke yep. film yep. or something. <laughs> so yeah, you're looking at sure my kids didn't yeah. <laughs> I thought that that's a memory that stuck in my mind of a guy who's Yeah, and that's the, that's what I kind of mentioned, you know, the quality versus the quantity because I like I said knowing that you're never going to have enough and you're going to miss a lot of things. I've missed a lot of events with my kids, but I I've also tried to, you know, they, there's a, there's benefits, you know, obviously they get to go to, you know, trips with us and NCAA tournaments and those type of things. Um, some of the exempt tours that we go to are places that foreign trips, they've gone on some of those with us. So there is a, there is a payoff or there is a counterbalance to it. But, uh, like I said, the time is fleeting and that's what I've tried to continue to, there's moments you're never going to get back. So I've tried to, you know, remind myself to be present 
and mentally be present. Uh, there's a difference between physically being present and mentally being present. The challenge is more often to be mentally present than it is even physically present.